Good evening. Welcome to the Critical Hour. We're coming to you from the capital of the United States of America, Washington, D.C., here on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, political scientist, author, and nationally syndicated columnist, Dr. Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, political analyst, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. For the next two hours, we will explore and analyze the salient news stories that are impacting the global village in which we live. RT had a piece earlier this week. What is this rules-based international order that Western elites keep talking about? America and its allies love to invoke the code words for, you are free to do as we tell you. For insight into this, let's start the show the way we do each Friday with our first guest. He's a widely acclaimed speaker, writer, journalist, and political analyst. He has traveled extensively in the Middle East and in Latin America. His latest book is entitled Kamala Harris and the Future of America, an essay in three parts. Caleb Moppin, as always, Caleb, welcome back. Sure. Glad to be here, as always. Rachel Marston writes, U.S. President Biden has beaten the drum that Americans will have to pay high energy prices for as long as it takes to stick it to Russia in Ukraine. A couple of months ago, when one of Biden's advisors, Brian Deese, was quizzed about the president's response to the price hikes on CNN, he replied, this is about the future of the liberal world order and we have to stand firm. And I'll add to that, Caleb. Steve Scalise on Wednesday talking about Nancy Pelosi's trip to Taiwan said, well, now she has to go. Our allies have to see us standing firm. We cannot be perceived as being weak. Your thoughts, Caleb Moppin. Well, look, if you look at the global situation now, we see basic artificial scarcity of fossil fuels that's been created by this conflict. Um, at this point, um, as you look at it, I mean, these oil companies are making lots and lots of money. The ability of one of their major competitors, Russia, to export oil and natural gas has been restricted. Uh, they are doing great right now. Uh, but Americans are being squeezed at the gas tank right now. Uh, inflation is rising. As I always point out, when the price of gasoline goes up, uh, the cost of everything goes up because if you bought it, a truck brought it, as the labor leader Jimmy Hoffa used to say. Uh, and when the price of gas goes up, the price of everything goes up. So working people are being squeezed across the United States. Around the world, conditions are very dire uh, in, in countries where, you know, where, you know, the, the increase of a couple dollars for a, a, a gallon of gasoline means, you know, taking food out of people's mouths. I mean, there's there's riots in the streets. Uh, the global economy doesn't really want to handle much of this, but it seems like there is a determination on the part of Nancy Pelosi and some of her allies um, that this just isn't enough. I mean, it's not enough that we're having a conflict with a major oil exporting country. Now we want to have a conflict with a major industrial country, uh, that being China, a country that is key in the manufacturing of computer chips and, and many vital commodities, the world's top producer of steel, the biggest telecommunications manufacturer in the world. Um, if, if they're not thinking about the consequences this is going to have for average Americans, I guess we can understand that. Um, the monopolies uh, on Wall Street and in London want to make sure they don't have competitors. They don't like Russia and China rising up out of poverty. But at the end of the day, uh, tightly squeezing the market, pushing Chinese products off the market, putting more of a barrier between the United States and this amazingly growing and strong economy coming out of China – 
it's not going to benefit us in any way. Uh, but there you go. It seems to be uh, not what the forces that are powerful and have influence in American politics are really concerned about. Well, you know, one thing, Caleb, I think is becoming very, very clear, and that's with, you know, the the Brian Deese, who, might I add, worked for BlackRock, <laughs> and he's one of Biden's economic advisors. But with his statement, with recently Joe Biden saying, well, we have to, Americans have to suffer as long as possible so that we can, you know, win against Putin. And, and, and recently, I believe it was uh, Jake Sullivan making a similar statement. One thing is obvious. The leadership of our government now, both parties, if there is really two, really don't care about the everyday working person. They really don't care about the plight of the day-to-day American. This is all about some weird ideology, which to me is kind of morphing into a, a twisted religion. But our government does not care about the working families anymore. Caleb. Indeed. I mean, the food banks around the country are having, you know, demand increasing. There are lines outside outside of Catholic charities in in New York City. Uh, People are hungry. People are struggling. uh, And the price of gasoline continues to rise. At this point, uh, we heard that they're not considering it a recession, even though we've had at this point two consecutive quarters of decreasing GDP. And that's generally how a recession is defined. Now, Janet Yellen, uh, U.S. Secretary of Treasury, insists that this is simply uh, what she called it. This is a a transition to a period of slower growth. (laughs) Well, you know, uh, the way things work is if your GDP is shrinking and not growing, that is not slower growth. Uh, That is not growth, right? Um, The GDP is actually shrinking. Um, so at this point, we are in a recession. I mean, there's really no way to put it otherwise. I guess if you move the goalpost and change the definitions, uh, you can you can say otherwise. But uh, the, the reality of the situation is America's working families are struggling, and the foreign policy of the United States is exacerbating these problems. No question about it. Well, what I have come to see now is that there are two different definitions of recession. There is the academic economist definition that you articulated, and then there's a political definition that Yellen has articulated. And what we do know is we're in a recession. The popular resistance has a piece, does economic pain mean NATO and the West cut Ukraine loose? They write that CIA Director William Burns argued that Putin's view of Americans is that we always suffer from attention deficit disorder and will get distracted by something else. Burns thinks that Putin is wrong, but he might miss what Putin actually thinks. The Russian president may not be banking on Americans simply getting distracted, but on U.S. and European populations focusing on a broader picture, favoring their own national interests and measuring the domestic pain caused by Western support for Ukraine. Uh, To me, Caleb, these two things don't have to be mutually exclusive. They can both exist at the same time. Indeed. Uh, and we have a situation where people are struggling, where the economy is getting worse. It's funny. I, I'm forced to think of uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger. Uh, if you remember at the 20, uh, 2004 Republican convention, just a couple years before that big financial crash uh, that just, you know, kind of came at the end of the Bush administration, that, you know, Wall Street housing bubble burst, you know, just that big financial crash. Uh, we had uh, we had Arnold Schwarzenegger taking the floor at the Republican National Convention and saying, don't be an economic girly man uh, to everyone who was predicting that there were problems. And it was just like, you know, you can't will away an economic crisis. You just can't say, oh, just ignore it. 
right? I, I think people are trying to, to go back to that whole thing. The only thing we have to fear is fear itself and Roosevelt referring to people being afraid to invest their money. But at the end of the day, economic crises are not created by people's feelings. They're created by real problems. And the real problem in the world today is that our ability to produce goods is more efficient than it's ever been before in history. Millions of working people have no place at the global assembly line. Uh, they have gotten so good at churning out products, but fewer and fewer workers are involved in the process of production. Uh, this leads to the problem of overproduction. This leads to the tendency of the falling rate of profits. These are the built-in problems of production organized for profit in the capitalist system. And uh, they can't be resolved simply by telling people not to acknowledge them or to, to will them away or wish them uh, away or saying, well, it's not really technically a recession because we have this new political definition. This is just slower growth. Well, no, the reality is the global economy is creaking and moaning, and there are big problems, and those problems are – attempted to be resolved generally by uh, by driving living standards down and pushing austerity onto the working class and by attempting to conquer new markets around the world. And it seems like this aggression against Russia and China, two countries that have risen up from poverty and are economic competitors with Wall Street, that seems to be one way that they're attempting to resolve this crisis. But in the, sh in the short term, uh, it's having devastating economic effects. And I don't think Russia and China are just going to fall so easily. You know, the USA was very successful when it attacked Iraq. Was very successful when it attacked Libya, but these are two major countries, the two Eurasian superpowers. They have strong economies, millions of people raised up from poverty, uh, and uh, you know I think ultimately the future of the United States lies in cooperation with them. Let me ask you this also, Caleb, because I was reading something last night about around the world the number of STEM pupils that are graduating. And when you look at China, it's, it's number one. Russia's really high up there, and we're not so high. We are actually preying on our students by when our students get out of college, they're in debt. They're in debt. They're, they got a house payment and no house. So regardless of how we try to push Russia or China or any other country down now, as these countries have the students with the knowledge, the students with the education, you can't take that education away from them. You can't have your students that are not on par uh, educationally with this other countries and think that you can hold the country down. I, I know you're familiar with China recently having made some major advances with chips. Your thoughts? Well, hang on. Not only, hey, not only with chips, with their space station, yeah, they, yeah. they've got their own space station. They uh, uh, Hypersonic they, missiles? They've got hypersonic missiles. They've landed on the dark side and communicated from the dark side of the moon. They got a Mars rover, I believe. Man, they're kicking butt and taking names. Caleb. Indeed. And I think this really gets down to the fact that during the Cold War, we centered our education system in the United States around brain drain. The idea was we didn't need to invest in training our own engineers and scientists and doctors because the United States was this prosperous land of milk and honey with so much wealth that all the doctors from the Eastern Bloc and all the doctors from India and all the doctors from China and, and other countries would get their education in their homeland and the same for engineers, the same for other scientists, and then they would come to the United States and they would come here and we could drain the anti-imperialist and socialist bloc, as well as just a lot of impoverished developing countries, of uh, their skilled folks, um, and we didn't have to invest in our own population. Um, the problem with that is that uh, now people in the developing world, people in countries like Russia or India or China or in African countries who get their degree in, in medical you know, stuff or in, in engineering, uh, you know, Chinese engineers and others, they look at the United States, 
and they see the school shootings, uh, and they see the drive, driving down of living standards, and they see January 6th and, you know, Buffalo Head running through the Capitol and all the crazy stuff going on, and they think, well, gee, you know, I just got some education, and I just got my degree, and I could, you know, stay in my homeland and team up, you know, and be involved in the process of raising people out of poverty, or I could go to the United States where I might make more money, but I also might not really want to raise a family there and not really want to set up a life there, and things there don't look too stable. And it's becoming quite a problem now that the United States is not training its own engineers and scientists and technicians and doctors, et cetera. Um, we're not doing that. Um, we assume people from around the world would just want to keep coming here. As our society is now falling apart, you know, and our poor educational policies probably have something to do with that. It's not the primary factor. Uh, now people around the world aren't wanting to come here. So the whole train is coming apart, I think. Let me ask you, so this popular resistance piece, most Western countries have a reflective opposition to Russia in terms of the United States policy and those that formulate that policy, I have been saying that many of them come out of the Brzezinski school. And so as such, there is this inherent bias, if not almost racist fervor, anti-Russian racist fervor. And so everything is viewed through that prism. So if we look at uh, Brzezinski to Madeleine Albright to Hillary Clinton. Then I think I can throw in Tony Blinken into that crew that they've got this predetermined ideology that prohibits them from seeing the world as the world really is. And then I can even go back to Condoleezza Rice, for example, who I think got her Ph.D. in international studies focusing on the Soviet Union and the Soviet Union doesn't exist anymore. Your thoughts, Caleb? Well, I think probably the primary factor is that these Western countries are more or less dependent on the United States. I mean, the way NATO is set up and the way the USA sells weapons and the way the U.S. economy is so dominant and the USA is a major purchasing market. And at the end of the day, uh, these countries are so dependent on the United States that if they wanted to have some kind of independent foreign policy, they couldn't do it. Uh, they would also uh, they would ultimately be losing out. And that uh, if the United States says, look, we're going to go all in against Russia. Uh, you know, countries like Germany that have a lot to lose economically from that policy, they just don't have the ability to say no, because they will face economic and political consequences for doing so. And that the, the independence and the sovereignty of the European countries, Germany, France, Belgium, uh, Italy, you know, in a lot of ways, those countries, because of their economic dependence on the United States, their military alliances with the United States and such, they just don't have the independence uh, that you would expect them to have as major economies in Western Europe. And I think that's becoming very apparent. And the rise of what you call the new right, uh, you know, alternative for Germany, uh, the Brexit stuff in Britain, and, and, you know, Marine Le Pen in France, those folks are not, you know, socialists or revolutionaries or anything like that. I think they just represent a current within the European countries that feel like, hey, we don't have to be dependent on the United States and we kind of lose out, uh, you know, in, in this deal. We're kind of getting the short end of the stick here. I think that's what's, what's a, a major factor here. And I think, yes, I mean, the fact that the United States has an educational system, Brzezinski in his book on, uh, on, on Eurasia, the Grand Chessboard, he talks about the role of Harvard and Yale and the fact that people from all over the world go and study at American universities and, and how in, important that is for spreading the U.S. narrative about Russia and about China around the world. 
that's certainly a factor as well. But at the end of the day, I think the purse strings uh, and, you know, follow the money. I mean, at the end of the day, these countries just don't have the independence one would expect them to have. Here's an interesting article, Caleb. What is this rules-based international order? American and its allies love to invoke the code words for you're free to do as we tell you. Your thoughts on the rules-based order? Well, they won't spell out what the rules are, because if they did, it would become very clear that the United States is breaking those rules. The rules are do as we say. Uh, And if we say one thing, uh, you better do it. And if you go against it, and if you bring up an alternative narrative, then you're violating the the rules uh, and that countries around the world that assert their economic independence that say, no, we don't want to have the USA pick our leaders for us. We want to uh, have leaders come into office that are more independent and are more tied in with the domestic economy. Uh, they get overthrown. They get cooed. They get accused of violating human rights, et cetera. And I think that's that's really the hypocrisy behind this rules based global order. The rules are obey them at all times. Uh, it's, it's not exactly it's not like a you know, law and order, letter of the law kind of thing. They won't explain which of these rules it is, um, because if you look at the U.N. Charter, if you look at any document uh, about war crimes or human rights or whatever, the United States is completely hypocritical when it lays down the blame on some countries and not others. U.K. advisor warns of nuclear war risk amid communication breakdown. Stephen Lovegrove says backdoor channels that kept world safe during the Cold War have disintegrated. I think it's important to understand that Stephen Lovegrove is the UK's national security advisor and that he's warning of a growing risk of confrontation with Russia and China amid a breakdown in the backdoor communications channels. Coming from him, people, that's, you know, like listening to Kissinger, when your allies start having these conversations, you need to pay attention. We got about a minute and a half. Sure. I mean, the Western alliances are starting to break down. These countries realize that on some level they're getting the short end of the stick. They're not being treated fairly. The United States demands that they comply completely and and follow U.S. foreign policy, but their economies are getting worse. Plus, the U.S. economy, as we discussed earlier, is getting worse. And so there's not as much of a benefit for being a part of the U.S. economy. We see this emerging alternative economy centered around Russia and China. You've got Iran. You've got the Bolivarian bloc of Latin America. And there is unease within the NATO camp as countries say, "Okay, Biden, we did your Ukraine thing. But how much longer are we going to keep going with this? How much longer are we going to keep going with this? How much longer is this going to take? Uh, Because the economy is really suffering. The world is kind of getting sick of it. People have talked about how Americans don't even want to hear about Ukraine anymore. They're not interested anymore. That wave of people waving Ukrainian flags, that's over. People are tired of this. They're hungry. It's a hot summer. They're worried about climate change. They're worried about paying their bills. And uh, and this narrative uh, is kind of wearing off. And I think there is definitely problems within the NATO camp, no doubt about it. Caleb Moppin, as always, thank you so much for your time. Greatly, greatly appreciate that analysis. And we look forward to having you back. Sure thing. Always a pleasure. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned.
We are back, and you're listening to the Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. Fed hikes 75 basis points for the second time and signals that a third is possible. Back-to-back increases are biggest since the early 1980s. The Federal Reserve has raised the interest rate by 75 basis points, or three-quarters of a point, for the second straight month, and Chair Jerome Powell said a similar move was possible again, rejecting speculation that the U.S. economy is in recession. Well, I always thought that the definition of recession was pretty simple. It's a business cycle contraction when there's a general decline in economic activity or negative growth for two consecutive quarters. For insight into this, let's turn to our next guest. He's an associate professor of economics at the University of Missouri, Kansas City, former president of the National Economics Association, Dr. Linwood Tahid. As always, sir, welcome back. Thank you. So with this latest discussion about after two consecutive quarters of negative growth, is the United States in a recession or not? Is there a difference between the academic definition of an economic recession and the, what we now seem to have is a political definition? Well, yeah. Uh, well, there, there uh, in the past has, has been no, no, no difference. The technical definition, if we want to split the academic and the political, has been exactly as you've explained it, two consecutive quarters of negative GDP growth. That's the accepted official definition. Uh, but of course, politicians can see this, these, this happening and still declare that we're not in a recession as, uh, as uh, Joe Biden is doing. In fact, Joe Biden is going further and say, we're not going to go into a recession. He's, he's looking into the future. Whereas his treasury secretary, uh, Janet Yellen, who is an economist, is trying to redefine the technical definition of recession. She admits that the technical definition is the one that you cited, but she's saying, well, you know, we need to wait and see because the National Bureau of Economic Research gives the official definition and they haven't said anything yet. And so the politics of it is that uh, it's, uh, it's not a recession yeah, I think they're going to redefine a quarter to be a quarter of a century. So we have to have actually 50 years of negative growth before it's a recession. So it's good, nice to know they're going to handle that. Now, let me ask you this, though. What about this, you know, 75 basis points they're going to drop? They've already dropped it. Now, if raising the interest rates drives us into a recession and we're in a recession, it appears to me they're not stupid. They know what's going to happen. There has to be intent behind this. What are your thoughts about all of this, the recession and they're raising the interest rates and whether they intend to make things worse? And your thoughts on all of that, Dr. Tawheed? Well, the Federal Reserve has announced that the aim, their aim for recession is 2 percent. Uh, excuse me, for inflation is 2 percent. And so right now, their aim is to increase interest rates until the inflation rate, which is now 9.1%, goes down to 2%. That's lower than the inflation rate before the pandemic. And so if they're driven by that, by that target, uh, we will be well into depression uh, before we reach a 2% inflation rate. Uh, we've, we've discussed on this program many times that uh, the current inflation is not caused by a decrease in demand. It's caused by a decrease in supply. And so we see spending, consumer spending, has already slowed because of the previous uh, hikes. 
and we will continue to have a decrease in consumer spending if the hikes continue. The problem is none of this does anything for supply. And so if supply is not resurrected, inflation will continue to, to be high and we will be um, uh, more into recession than we already are. We are already in a recession. How far we go into that recession and how long it lasts depends on on um, how the Fed uh, handles interest rates. Uh, I just want to, I know the definition of recession. What's the definition of a depression? Uh, there is no official definition of, of depression. Um, I, I guess the politics is, uh, you know, is uh, that would be a, a disaster for any political party to declare that in a depression. So they've relieved themselves of that possibility by having no, no official definition. There's no technical def- or political definition of a depression. I, I suppose it's a really, really long recession. The Schumer Mansion climate bill will impact you and change the U.S. This is from the Washington Post. Major changes in the Affordable Care Act, the nation's biggest ever climate bill, the largest tax hike on corporations in decades, and dozens of lesser-known provisions that will affect millions of Americans. They say, if enacted, the legislation released Wednesday night in the surprise agreement between Manchin and Chuck Schumer would represent one of the most consequential pieces of economic policy in recent recent U.S. history, though still far smaller than the $3 trillion that Biden initially thought. Your thoughts on this Schumer-Manchin bill, and the only thing I can figure is if Joe Manchin signed on to it, there must not be much to it. I, I think that um, um, my, my opinion looking at the bill is, is that I'll wait to see it actually passed. Uh, you know, uh, it, uh, there, there, there may be still something of Joe Manchin or Kristen Sinema's sleeve uh, to allow them to withdraw from this. But if that doesn't happen, this, this is uh, a, a good and bad bill. Uh, the good bill is the 300, the good part is the $385 billion that's going to be directed to uh, renewable energy, addressing climate change, and, and so forth. That also should be a, a supply boost uh, in order to, to, and will maybe help inflation. So this is the Inflation Reduction Act, so that part will, will possibly do that. Uh, there's also going to be uh, another $100 billion in spending uh, for health care, particularly those for subsidies for those who are on the um, um, uh, Affordable Care Act, and, and, and that's a good thing. Um, uh, the 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 revenue that's supposed to to um, offset the spending uh, comes to actually more than the spending. The, the the total spending is estimated 480 billion. The revenue is estimated at 790 billion, which actually makes this a deficit reduction bill also. The problem with deficit reduction is that whenever uh, in the past, the federal government has attempted to reduce the deficit. The country has gone into recession. And so we have in this bill uh, something that is uh, intended to reduce inflation that will also reduce reduce increase recession, the possibility of recession. And, and those things in, in the common way of thinking in Washington kind of go hand in hand. So this will exacerbate the recession. 
um, uh, even as it as it might reduce something for inflation. So there's good and bad in this bill. There were other ways that this bill could have been been structured, and that nearly three hundred billion dollars of deficit reduction could have been directed to uh, things that would increase supply, like child care and other kind of things that were in the uh, Build Back Better bill. So this could be this could be a better bill. It has good things, but it could be better. And in many cases, it's going to cause uh, increased problems. When you look at a situation like this, you always have to ask yourself, why now? So my question is, where was this a year ago when they were saying that the Affordable Care Act was dead? They, they could have gotten to this point a year ago because now as we look at the midterms, folks are going to be raising their hands and shaking their heads saying, you haven't really done anything for me. Well, uh, you know, this could have been done uh, and, and, and much more in the Build Back Better bill. But uh, Joe Manchin was the sticking point on that. And, and uh, to, to give this now, which is too little, too late. Uh, is I think uh, because of the desperation of the, of the Democrats looking at the uh, the um, Biden uh, um, popularity uh, going below 30 uh, percent, and knowing that uh, certainly Joe Biden has no coattails, there's, there's no possibility of him helping Democrats in the uh, in the midterms coming, and they they have to appear to be doing something. Again, there are things in this bill that should have been done and and much bigger. Uh, before, but at least they're doing something. The, uh, the the deficit reduction problem is is a problem for Democrats and Republicans. They believe that deficit reduction is a good thing, but it, but it's not. The last time we had significant deficit reduction was at the end of the Clinton administration, which caused the recession for the uh, the, the Bush one uh, Bush two administration when it came into office in two thousand and one. Uh, deficit reduction creates recession. Let me ask you this, because you said they believe in deficit reduction. I remember Dick Cheney saying deficits don't matter. And at the time, it was because they had the Iraq war going on and they had a major tax cut for the rich at the same time. Here are my thoughts. They only matter when the deficits are being created by something that they don't want to spend on. So basically, if it's, OK, we need to do something for health care for the people, deficits, we can't, deficits are a problem. We can't possibly have deficits. It's going to drive us to, to holy heck. Now, we need to spend another $850 billion for the military. Well, those, that's a priority. We can't really let de- deficits hold us back. So it seems to me in reality well, that while they say they have a problem with deficits, that problem is only relative to what it is driving the deficit at that time, Dr. Uh, Tawheed. Especially since they can print money. Yeah, how about that, Dr. Tawheed? Yeah, yeah, no, you, you, you hit the, head, uh, the, the nail on the head here. Uh, but when, when Dick Cheney says deficits don't matter, he's saying that in private with the Treasury Secretary and with and with the President. Uh, the mantra from both parties is that uh, we we need to you know get down move down the deficit to to uh, balance the budget. Uh, Democrats have have uh, glommed onto this thing. Uh, Republicans have also. But as you as you are correct, when spending for the military or spending for other um, um, uh, corporate uh, back programs come about. Uh, deficits don't matter. So Dick Cheney was was telling the truth uh, economically that deficits don't matter. It's not the thing that that either party will put into the public, but uh, but because the, the the federal government can 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 make up the deficit in in printing money, 
then, then deficits economically really don't matter. 75% of Democrats want Biden out in 2024 polling. And you've just alluded to this. The numbers come as the president's approval ratings continue to sink. Some 75 percent of Democrats and Democrat leaning voters want someone other than Biden to represent the party in 2024. This is from a new CNN poll. And it's interesting that the survey found just 25 percent of Democrats and likely Democratic voters want him to run again, which is down from 45 percent. Twenty four percent want him to duck out of the race as they don't think he can win, 32% just don't want him back. To your point about no coattails, as we're moving into the midterms, it's a sad day in Mudville. If you're a Democrat, let me get, first get your response to that. Well, yes, a sad day because not only do uh, Democrats, uh, a large percentage uh, of Democrats want uh, Joe Biden not to run in 2024, of course, uh, no Republican wants Joe Biden to run in 2020. Oh, I, I beg to differ. No, I, I, think, they, I think they do. <laughs> I think they want him to run. <laughs> I, I think they, they do. They don't want him to run in 2024, <laughs> uh, which, is also a bad, uh, which would also be a very, very bad sign. And the problem is, of course, the Democrats have no one to put in Joe Biden. Well, let me say this, because I think that's something that needs to be at least briefly discussed. I'm not going to say that there's nobody to put in their place. But what I would say is the kind of candidate that would be attractive to the working class. The, to kind, the, of a, the kind of agenda. Exactly. That would have the platform that would be attractive to the traditional Democratic constituent will be crushed by the mainstream Democrats because they hate people who, who are looking out for the working class. Your thoughts? No, no, I think you're absolutely right. Bernie Sanders would, would could obviously uh, be a good candidate, but but he's he's never going to get the opportunity. Uh, his age will be a a factor, although uh, he's 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 holding it or carrying his age much much better than Joe Biden. A a, a Gavin Newsom of California would be a, an excellent candidate. The, the working class would rally it behind him, but again, he is much much too progressive for corporate Democrats. And so the uh, in the primary system, uh, he will he'll he'll not get the support uh, to get through the primary to become the candidate. Uh, and so, so you're right the, the 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 corporate Democrats will continue to shoot themselves in the in, in the in the toes at each toe individually until they're down to one toe <laughs> uh, before they will let uh, a progressive candidate get the nomination. And so, yes, yeah, the, the, there are no corporate Democrat uh, uh, replacements for for Joe Biden. Uh, and and so um, uh, that that bodes badly for for Democrats, not only in the midterm, but also in the 2024 election. I think it's also important as we look at these numbers for people to understand it's not only a CNN poll that has found this to be true. There's a University of New Hampshire poll and there's also a Yahoo News YouGov poll that reveals similar data. But one of the things that I think that is very, very telling and problematic for the Democrats going forward is enthusiasm for Biden is the lowest among young Democrats, with just 18 percent of those under 45 preferring 
Biden as the nominee, because that to me means it's not boding well, not only for Biden, but it doesn't bode well for the Democrats in the future. Uh, young young voters um, are the most difficult to get to the poll. Uh, they 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 don't rally around the the, the party to to get to the to to vote uh, to get to the polls to vote uh, just to save the party. They want to see some results. And and with President Biden and Democrats in general, they, they're certainly not seeing results. This this new inflation reduction bill, if it passes, will be something. But but it's not enough for climate change. There is no student loan um, uh, forgiveness in this bill. Uh, there's no child care. There's there's there are lots of other things that Joe Biden campaigned on that are not in this bill. And and young voters uh, are certainly uh, uh, feel disenfranchised, and they will not go to the polls. It's not like they're going to go vote for Democrats Republicans. They just will not go to vote. And Democrats need turnout in order to win, and that's not going to happen. And to your point about party allegiance, the Democrats have missed an incredible opportunity because if they had focused on the student debt and the free community college, they would have created an allegiance amongst a demographic that would, I think would be analogous to African-Americans voting Democrat based upon civil rights legislation. A demographic that they owned in 2008 and bragged that for years they would win because they have all the young people. 20 seconds, Dr. Tahi. Uh, yes, uh, the, that that would have incited uh, excited uh, the uh, young people to get to the, not only to get to the polls but to go out and to get out the vote, correct uh, registration and other kinds of things. Uh, I, it, it, it amazes me that the Democrats don't see that it is the the youth that that's going to be the backbone of this party, and if they don't have that, the party is dead. Dr. Lin Tahid, as always, sir, thank you so much for your time. Greatly, greatly appreciate that analysis. We look forward to having you back. Thank you, sir. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. Well, CNN reports Pelosi departing for Asia today, but Taiwan stops still uncertain. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi plans to depart today for a tour of Asia, though whether she stops in Taiwan remains uncertain, according to people familiar with the plans. For insight into this, let's turn to our next guest. He's a former U.S. Marine Corps intelligence officer and author of Disarmament in the Time of Perestroika, Arms Control in the End of the Soviet Union. He served in the Soviet Union as an inspector implementing the INF Treaty, served in General Schwarzkopf's staff until the Gulf War, and from 91 to 98, served as a chief weapons inspector with the U.N in Iraq, Scott Ritter. As always, Scott, welcome back. Thanks for having me. So it's reported that uh, her trip includes stops in Japan, South Korea, Malaysia, and Singapore, all U.S. allies in the region. But a drop into self-governing Taiwan was still only tentative as China issues warnings about the House Speaker making a possible visit and U.S.-China relations are at a low point. Your thoughts, Scott Ritter. Um, I, I mean, it, 
normally when somebody behaves in this manner, uh, you, you can pick up the phone and call crisis intervention. The police will arrive for a welfare check. And if they're found to be actively suicidal, they can be brought into protective custody and, uh, and institutionalized. That's literally what needs to happen to Nancy Pelosi right now. She is insane. Um, I don't know what game she's playing. This isn't about, um, you know, showing that America is strong. It's showing that she is stupid. Um, the people that make America strong, uh, the military, have basically said, don't do this. Uh, General Miley has given her briefings on what the consequences of her actions will be. The president of the United States has basically said the military is a good idea. And yet this insane woman is um, not just trying to commit suicide for her, but everybody on the airplane with her. And then by extension, millions of Taiwanese, millions of Chinese, which she apparently doesn't care about. And of course, her fellow American citizens are going to pay the price for her hubris and her narcissism, because this is 100% an exercise in individual narcissism. This is about Nancy Pelosi. It's not about America. It's not about American security. It's not about Taiwan. This is about Nancy Pelosi seizing the headline, because, look, she's a senior member of a Democratic Party who's headed by a president whose uh, trajectory in terms of popular approval is heading downhill at a rapid pace. Um, the Democrats are facing a very contentious uh, election in the midterms coming up, which almost every political analyst believes they're going to do very poorly in. So uh, Nancy, I think, believes that she can somehow, um, you know, buff up and polish up the uh, the Democratic image. Um, but all she's going to do is, is show how uh, how stupid a octogenarian female is as her body falls out of a broken aircraft, because that's what's going to happen. I mean, the Chinese have said, don't play with fire. The Chinese don't bluff. I mean, normally they're very diplomatic. They're very reticent. Uh, they don't make threats. They're threatening us. They have said, don't do this. And yet she's leaving open the possibility that she is going to do this. Does she think she can sneak into Taiwan <laughs> as if the Chinese don't have total control of the airspace? Um, I don't know what's going on in her brain. Let me add this. This is an article from almost exactly one year ago, July 27, 2021. The U.S. military failed miserably in an October war game scenario involving a battle for Taiwan. And now military leaders are looking at how to change the U.S. joint war fighting strategy. But here's what I have to say. I don't think you're ever going to win if you go to the border of a superpower. If the U.S. goes to the border of Russia, I suspect they lose in a hurry. If they go to the border of China, I suspect they lose in a hurry. I suspect if they come to our border, they won't do so well either. I'll even add this. If you go to the border of Iran, where they've got lots of ballistic missiles, I ain't going to say you ain't going to win in the long run, but you ain't going to be happy about it. It's not going to be a fun victory by any stretch of the imagination, which tells it, it me— It might be Pyrrhic. Yeah, which tells me they go there, let's start this and send a carrier strike group. That carrier strike group ends up on the bottom of the Taiwan Straits, and now there's nuclear missiles flying around, and there ain't no Monday. Scott, that's what concerns yeah. me. No, that, that's been my, uh, my nightmare scenario. I've been saying it uh, for some time now. Um, that, you know, I'm not worried about Ukraine. Russia's winning in Ukraine, and there's nothing anybody can do to stop it, and it's just going to happen. Um, the, the, the fear is Taiwan, because A, 
you know, bad things come in threes. The United States got its butt kicked last year in Afghanistan. It's getting its butt kicked right now in Ukraine, uh, which means that the United States isn't going to uh, allow itself to get its butt kicked in China. Now, the smart way to avoid this fight um, is to walk away. Um, that's what strong, confident people do, walk away from a fight that doesn't need to happen. Um, weak people pick fights. And uh, we're very weak right now. We're picking a fight that we can't win. Uh, and if we lose three conventional battles in a row, um, I just believe that there is going to be a temptation by those in the military um, system who actually believe that the United States can fight and win a nuclear war, especially against a limited nuclear power like China with only a few hundred intercontinental ballistic missiles. What utter <laughs> morons these people are. Uh, we don't have a viable ballistic missile defense shield. Uh, the Chinese only need one of these missiles to slip through, and we're talking tens of millions of dead Americans. Tens of millions. Uh, they'll probably have dozens slip through, which means we're, we're probably going to be talking about one in every three Americans killed immediately because of nuclear war with China. Um, I... I, I I don't under, and we have people right now in the military system that are going back to the Dr. Strangelove era of the Cold War, where we believe that these kind of losses are acceptable uh, because in the end, you know, our society will survive together with our values and our beliefs. And no, they won't. Um, and nuclear war should never be fought. The Biden administration agreed earlier in this year, together with all the major nuclear powers, that nuclear war cannot be won, therefore nuclear war can never be fought. So why are we putting ourselves in a scenario where the only option we're going to have to save face is using nuclear weapons? Because we're not going to win conventionally. They will sink every ship we send towards Taiwan. That is an absolute statement, guaranteed, 100% factually correct assertion. And I'm not challenging the Navy to prove me wrong, because you can't. I don't want to win with six of your ships at the bottom of the ocean and 12 to 15,000 dead sailors. That's not what I want to see. And the Navy knows this. They know it because they've war gained it. They have never won. They can't win. They don't have the force structure to win. That's why the Marine Corps has totally revamped its approach to um, maritime warfare. We don't do World War II type uh, in, uh, amphibious invasions anymore. The Marine Corps has broken it down to smaller units spread loaded on ships. We're going to do hit and run attacks, things of that nature, because large scale combat next to China is a losing proposition. <laughs> Scott, 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 you said Russia is winning in Ukraine. Scott, Scott. He must not the, have read the Washington the Post. The Washington today. Post, Scott, <laughs> reports Ukraine could be turning the tide of war again as Russian advances stall. Russian advances in Ukraine have slowed almost to a standstill as newly delivered Western weapons help Ukrainian forces reclaim much of the advantage they had lost in recent months, opening a window of opportunity to turn the tide of the war in their favor Again, Scott, we talk about this piece in the following context, and I, I keep going back to this.
This is, of course, NBC News. In a break with the past, U.S. is using intel to fight an info war with Russia, even when the intel isn't rock solid. It doesn't have to be rock solid, said one U.S. official. It's more important to get out ahead of them, Putin specifically, before they do something. So obviously, Scott, Putin reads the Washington Post every morning. The Washington Post is now telling us that Ukraine could be turning the tide. And now I guess he's sitting in the Kremlin quaking in his boots. Well, you know, part of that article also said that the purpose of this was to get into Putin's head. Um, And so what's happening here is they know the following, that the Russians, first of all, haven't stalled. Uh, The Russians uh, are continuing to advance, um, you know, uh, across the front. Um, But what the Russians have been doing is pulling back uh, critical uh, strike formations, uh, resting them, re-equipping them, reinforcing them. Um, I, I don't know if the definition of Russia losing is, is, is best uh, illustrated by a train bringing in hundreds of heavy artillery pieces uh, from uh, arms depots in, uh, in, in the center of Russia. They're now arriving um, at the front lines because Sometime in early August, uh, the Russians are going to begin um, one of the major, I mean, the, probably the largest offensive yet since the start of this, um, this special military operation. Uh, and this offensive is unlike the grinding operations that have been taking place. This is an offensive designed to rapidly resolve the situation. That is, they are going to annihilate entire sectors of the front line, pour their tanks across, and fight the kind of deep mobile battles that the Russians are noted for. Um, they want to they want to end the issue of uh, Donetsk this month, or the coming month in August. Uh, that's the Russian plan. We know it's the Russian plan. The Ukrainians know it's the Russian plan, and there's not a damn thing they can do about it except this act of desperation. I guess they want Putin to preempt his plans and say, oh, no, 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 you've got to attack now, guys. Forget being prepared. Suicide. Commit suicide. Commit suicide. Because that's what the Russians do. They respond to the Washington Post. <laughs> no. Russia could care less about this propaganda. Russia's fighting its war on its timetable. And trust me, this time next week or shortly thereafter, you're going to be seeing photographs of World War II-type concentrations of artillery literally flattening kilometers of the Ukrainian defensive belt, killing everything contained within, and then the Russians are going to come pouring across uh, with mobile strike, strike groups that are going to slaughter the Ukrainians. So, yeah, Washington Post, enjoy your headline. Uh, so, Scott, week, all it's going to be good for is catching bird poop. Because that's that's it. Is it safe for me then to say, from what you've just said, that? The Ukraine is not turning the tide. And <laughs> go ahead, Carlin. <laughs> so let me ask you this, Scott, and here's the next thing. Lately, there's been a discussion about what happens after the inevitable, when the Russians take the eastern Ukraine. A couple of things are of consequence here. Number one, they will have effectively wiped out the Ukrainian military. The Ukrainian, they'll be in spots. They'll have some in Kharkov. They'll have some in Odessa, Kiev. They'll have spots that they're protecting, but they won't have people that can come back, you know, that they can reinforce them with. And those people there will know, my gosh, the best and brightest and biggest were over there 
and none of them are live anymore. And, uh, you know, could we be looking at a political or military collapse or coup or something immediate, like some type of collapse at that point? Because I think the Russians are not going to slow up. I think they're going to put their foot on the gas after this. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't want to predict the Russian military because they don't care what I think. <laughs> they only care what they think. And so they're going to do what they're going to do. Um, but, you know, there, it, it's Putin hasn't in, instructed Shoigu to launch this major offensive. We know that. Um, and it looks like Shoigu is putting the police, pieces in place for this to begin sometime in the next uh, week or so. Um, and they will destroy the Ukrainian military. Here's the deal. When you read uh, Ukrainian uh, telegram channels, um, they, they have very accurately described an ongoing internal strife between the office of the presidency and the Ukrainian Ministry of Defense, where Zelensky is squaring off against the Minister of Defense. Uh, try, and it's a blame game. Who's to blame for the defeats in the East? Um, you know, Zelensky is, uh, is, is asserting his authority as the commander-in-chief to impose on the Ukrainian Ministry of Defense uh, certain military responses that they object to. Uh, it's resulting in very important military formations being destroyed prematurely, people dying, things of that nature. Uh, if the Russians are able to roll up the bulk of the Ukrainian military, um, my assessment is that Zelensky will be killed by the Ukrainian Ministry of Defense, uh, that this president will be treated as a traitor, a man who has betrayed his trust as the leader, a man who is responsible for the deaths of tens of thousands of Ukrainian soldiers, and he will be killed uh, by a Ukrainian military hit squad who uh, will show him no mercy. Um, that's my prediction, because that's how bad Zelensky is, and that's how bad things are going to go. The Ukrainian military will not sit idly while its troops are slaughtered on the orders of a lunatic president who feels it's more important to have Vogue photo shoots than it is to actually lead your country. So what does the United States do as we continue to pour weapons into the country? U.S. Ukrainian defense chiefs discuss more deliveries of HIMARS systems, for example. So the United States is, is setting up a predicate for a prolonged conflict. So what does the United States do from a face-saving perspective, from a narrative, when or if the scenario that you've just laid out happens? Does the United States put in another puppet dictator to replace Zelensky? Uh, I don't think the Ministry of Defense will allow that. Um, uh, if, they, if the Ministry of Defense de decides to kill Zelensky, uh, it means they're taking over. Um, they're, they're not, you know, in the, they're taking over for a reason meaning they don't trust the system that has been in play. You know, the United States was providing Afghanistan with billions of dollars worth of equipment up until the very last moment. Um, you know, so we're, we did the same thing in Vietnam. If you study the Vietnamization, you know, the, the, the North Vietnamese were, you know, driving down toward, you know, from, uh, from, from the DMZ towards Saigon in February, March. They finished the job in April. Uh, but in January, February, we were still delivering shipments of, uh, 
of weapons to the South Vietnamese. We're very good at uh, living in a fantasy world where we believe by providing weapons we can somehow change the, the course of history on the ground. We can't. What is the U.S. going to do? At some point in time, the U.S. is going to try, I believe, an emergency retrograde. They, together with NATO, because they do know one thing. Um, the Russians, when they, when they finally do win, they're going to capture a lot of stuff that the U.S. and the French and the Germans don't want them to capture. So I believe there's going to be a, um, an operation called Get the Hell Out of Ukraine Quick. Um, <laughs> and the U.S. is basically going to tell whatever surviving Ukrainian units are who have these weapons, uh, drive straight to the Romanian borders, drive straight to the Polish border. We have a field here. Park your stuff. Get your paycheck and uh, and head off to refugee status. But um, I don't believe the U.S. is just going to sit there and say, oh, yeah, that's okay. Russia's going to take over, you know, the $40 billion of our most sophisticated weaponry. I, um, yeah, I mean, the best way to prevent that is to stop sending it now because there's literally nothing. I don't know. Does the U.S. government read the Washington Post and believe that? Because um, it's a headline written by the U.S. government. So are they fooling themselves? Uh, who knows what's going on? But I do believe the final phase of American involvement uh, in Ukraine is going to be, um, you know, how do we how do we do a Dunkirk type evacuation to get uh, equipment and, uh, and, uh, and 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 manpower out of uh, out of Ukraine to avoid death and destruction at the hands of the Russians. One last headline from Global Times, and this tells you all you need to know. Don't say we didn't warn you. Symposium of China's top think tank sends classic pre-war warning to provocative Pelosi. One minute, Scott Ritter. Don't say they didn't warn you. Um, (laughs) Nancy, you're going to die. I mean, if you're listening to this, you're going to die. Everybody on your airplane is going to die. Don't go to Taiwan. It's stupid, really stupid. The Chinese aren't bluffing. Yeah, I think you're. I think you. I think you're probably right on that one, Scott. Scott Ritter. As always, thank you so much for your analysis. I just wish you'd be clearer. I, you, you're too ambiguous, Scott. Never wants to hurt anybody's feelings. Exactly. Upset the exactly. apple cart. You exactly. Know? But we, 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 that's what we love about you, Scott. Uh, appreciate it. Enjoy your weekend. We look forward to having you back. Okay. Thanks a lot, folks. You're listening to the Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leanne. I'm joined here by my co-host Garland Nixon. There's another hour on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. The New York Times writes, Nancy Pelosi's trip to Taiwan is too dangerous. The United States and China are on a collision course in the Taiwan Strait. China's ambitions have risen along with its military power, and it may soon be capable of seizing democratically ruled Taiwan, even in a fight with the U.S. That's the New York Times. Uh, For insight into this, let's turn to our first panel. It's Friday, so that does mean it's panel time. Uh, We are joined by the National Organization for Action for Assange, Steve Poikinen. As always, Steve, welcome back. Thank you, Wilmer. Good to be here. Thank you, sir. We're also joined by a writer at the Polemicist.net and Counterpunch. He's the author of the piece, Ukraine Negotiation Kabuki, Dr. Jim Cavanaugh. As always, Jim, welcome back. As always, thanks for having me. 
So as it's now being reported, Nancy Pelosi has departed for her Asia trip she left today, but the stop in Taiwan is still uncertain. Uh, Jim Cavanaugh, when you read the language being used by China, we told you so. In their parlance, that's very, very strong, direct language. Jim Cavanaugh, your thoughts? Yeah, you know, I, I got to tell you, maybe because it's hard for me to take Nancy Pelosi so, too seriously, <clears throat> um, watching her talk or try to talk, uh, I was kind of surprised by how adamant the Chinese are about this, but they are really adamant about it. They see her as the third, you know, uh, highest official in the United States. They see this as the first time in 25 years that someone of her rank in the American government has made an official visit. And they, uh, they are feeling themselves in a situation where, one, they don't trust the United States anymore. They see the forces in the United States gathering and pressing for supporting Taiwan and de facto supporting Taiwan independence. They know the Republicans are, are want that. Uh, Pelosi herself has been uh, adamant pro-Taiwanese. And so they, they don't trust that the United States is keeping to its one China pledge. And two, they've now feeling their own strength. And they're saying, we're not going to wait around forever and let the United States feed more weapons into Taiwan and build it up and build up political support for it and essential and de facto recognition. So they are serious about this uh, in a way that surprised me, but you know, in the long run, doesn't surprise me. <laughs> and uh, we are just, the United States government just seems incapable of having the respect that it, that other countries demand for their own interests and their own sovereignty and, you know, for not being treated, again, like children who are under the command of the United States. Uh, and this is running out. The issue of the this strategic ambiguity regarding Taiwan is on both sides, I think, running out. And the Chinese probably feel, uh, uh, you know, uh, we're, getting, we're, we're pretty strong now, uh, and Taiwan may just get stronger. The Americans feel the, the Chinese are only going to get stronger. We've got to pump up our support for Taiwan, so it's a very, very dangerous situation. Steve, I, I said at the open, I told you so, but actually the, the language is, don't say we didn't warn you. And apparently, President Xi, during his phone conversation with Joe Biden, warned about the seriousness and significance. He says, public opinion cannot be defied. <laughs> this is President Xi telling Joe Biden, those who play with fire will perish by it. It is hoped that the U.S. will be clear-eyed about this. And I can't stress this enough, and Garland, if I'm if this is hyperbole, please correct me. I don't think Americans really understand when when the Chinese, just like the Russians, when they say something, they're not bluffing. It's not hyperbole. When they say, "Don't say we didn't warn you," that means you got a behind whooping on its way and they're not going to feel bad about delivering it. 
Well, you can only you can only tell somebody so many times before you figure out that they don't learn that way and they learn by doing or by being shown. Uh, and so there's there's going to be a point whether it, it's boots on the ground or planes in the air reckoning or you know perhaps cooler heads prevail and there's diplomatic reckoning but that's coming it's unavoidable at this point and to have to to suggest that uh america the the hope is that america be clear-eyed when our media is saturated with clearly pilled up heavily medicated I can't tell if Nancy Pelosi's drunk or if somebody <laughs> if Kamala Harris has an angry staffer who's putting like MDMA into her water before she goes on and that's why she's giggling like that but these are not clear-eyed people to begin with so that's almost to me kind of a a, a you know backhanded jab at how clearly medicated our our leadership is um but therein lies the problem we're not dealing with rational actors. We're not dealing with clear-eyed people. We're dealing with people who are, if not, you know, drunken on drugs, at least drunk on their own hubris. And the fact that the U.S. has been the sole superpower for the last 75 years. Next interesting thing that we have is a recession. The U.S. economy shrinks in second quarter, signaling the unofficial start of a recession. Why it's unofficial, I don't know. But so let's start with you, Jim. Uh, One of the discussions that we heard that would make sense based on what we've learned from the Biden administration is that one of the ways that they see that would be appropriate to deal with the recession is simply to call it something else, to rename (laughs) it. And then voila, they will have gotten out of recession in like 40 eight hours by simply saying, uh, you know, from now on, a quarter is going to be a quarter of a century. So you have to have 50 years of contraction in order to actually have a recession. What say you about this recession this close to the midterms, Jim Cavanaugh? I, I would say a rose by any other name <laughs> would smell as sweet, according to, I think that was William Shakespeare. Uh, <laughs> Jim Cavanaugh. Yeah, well, look, they changed the definition of vaccine. They changed the definition of pandemic. They changed the definition of dying from a disease uh, when you don't, when you shoot yourself in the head or have a motorcycle accident. So this has been two years. We've been changing definitions for purposes that have nothing to do with the ostensible uh, economic or scientific reality. But you know, we're we're and and what the. Uh, what the reality is, you know, is that whatever you call it, rose by any other name, is uh, a pile of whatever it smells like. <laughs> you know, uh, the, uh, the the economy, the social economy, is a disaster for people. There's been just an increase of inequality. We've seen in the last two years an enormous upward transfer of wealth. People are getting thrown out of their apartments because the apartment rents are going up 20, 30, double. And so... In this situation where people can't afford health care, they can't afford to drive around their cars anymore, they can't afford to buy – groceries are going up 50 percent, 20 percent, and they're, and housing is becoming impossible. So – and the, the, you can't even the, – the, the hedge funds are buying it all up. So, you know, the, the real economy for people is a disaster and nobody has a plan to do anything about it, OK? They're going to, you know, fight inflation by – 
destroying the economy by raising interest rates, which will only uh, deepen the problem. And uh, so we're in a situation that's that's been brewing since, you know, really the 2008, 2009, when, you know, the decision was made by the Obama administration to protect capital and uh, at all costs and uh, let the rest of the economy, you know, try and figure out, keep that, keep that some kind of bubble going for a while. But we've run out of that now. And the, the, the social economy is a disaster. So whatever you call it, you know, by any other name, it's a pile of roses. <laughs> Steve, to Jim's point about evictions, this is from May. Eviction filings raised to almost pre-pandemic levels as federal rental assistance runs out. That's just to uh, give a little data to Jim's point. Steve Poikinen. Well, I mean, they, they tried to change the definition of inflation. Uh, a couple of months ago, and that didn't really go anywhere. They changed the definition uh, of woman and herd immunity and all kinds of things. Like, we're just, words mean whatever Janet Yellen says they mean whenever she decides they mean something now. We talked about this briefly before uh, we went on the air, but Wikipedia has locked down and frozen its page for the, the word recession because between the 25th and yesterday, there were over 50 separate edits to the word recession, where someone would go in and try and change it to the White House's definition, which means uh, recession is something that you feel intrinsically. It's a vibe. It's not it's not a real economical issue. It's, it's nothing you can quantify. It's more of more, you know, just you're catching feelings. Don't worry about it. Uh, we're in the process. Of, I've said this before, but I mean, the real time is being rewritten. And it's the job of a truly independent press to combat not only the whitewashing of history, but the rewriting of real time. And we're, we're being told by people who we're told no better that, that up is down, day is night, that, uh, you know, recession doesn't mean two periods of negative growth. Uh, it's, Jim's right. The, the social economy is, in the toilet. And there's going to come a moment when people look around and realize that, no, it's not their neighbor that's really been lying to them. It's not the person that has, like, green hair when they go get a coffee or not the person who has a, a MAGA hat when they go get their car worked on. It's the, the state that has been lying to them the entire time about absolutely everything. Jim Kavanaugh, we should fear not because centrists to launch forward <laughs> new third U.S. political party. Dozens of former Democrats and Republicans to form new party in bid to appeal to voters unhappy with America's two-party system. What say you, Jim Kavanaugh, as Andrew Yang and what's her name? <laughs> Christy Todd Whitman, Whitman are now co-chairs of the forward party. How much better do you feel, Jim Kavanaugh? Yes, I saw a good quip earlier today. Third party, I mean, I said we had a second party. <laughs> and, and really, this is the third first party, if, if you will. I mean, this is the third iteration of the one party that we have. Because really, you know, these are the elites. This is the, the faction of the elites which wants civility. Now, you know, <laughs> and they, ha they have no specific programs on the table. And the minute they do put a specific program in the table, everything's going to break apart again because people are, you know, uh, 
civility is a nice thing, and we should certainly be able to talk about things. And that goes back to the idea that we should be able to have conversations in which we can honestly and frankly talk to each other about how you define certain things before you move on to have a discussion about them, which you can't do anymore, and not be manipulated about that. But, you know, really more important to people is, you know, am I going to get my health care? What are you gonna, what's the policy of Andrew Yang and Christine Whitman? Oh, just let's have a nice conversation about it? No, I don't want to just have a nice conversation about it. I want a universal health care program, free, free appointed service, like every other advanced industrial country. How am I going to uh, pay my rent? Are we going to have rent controls? Are you going to have housing? Are you going to have housing policies which aren't designed to help you know, the, the BlackRock go in and buy all the buy all the homes. You know, these are the specific. What, what are you going to do about the war? You're going to you're going to serve up the. You're going to uh, pay a fifty hundred billion dollars to Ukraine to keep. We're going to have a perpetual war against Russia, or are we not? We're going to stop. So these are the specific questions that any party that's a real political party has to answer. This is the faction of the elite that wants to say, let's let's try and. And, and we know out the extremists in both parties, which are the MAGAs on, and the Republicans and the and the and the far left <laughs> Bernie Sanders people in the Democratic Party who hardly even exist anymore, there and 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 be a kind of reinvig, re, reinvigoration of establishment consensus. So this is, you know, the, the 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 their problem is that the that the establishment consensus is being challenged in both parties, and we got to do away with that. This is silliness, and it's you know as I say. Uh, it, it depends on the fact that they don't have a specific program and a specific specific policy. And the minute they do, you know, they're going to have to defend it and they're going to break up and because they won't. And, and certainly they're not going to put forward a policy that's really going to change what I call, you know, the, the disaster of the social economy and the disaster of the imperialist wars. You know, Steve, I'm wondering now, because Janet Yellen redefining recession makes me think that she's employing George Bush's voodoo economics. And now this forward policy makes me think that they're energizing George Bush's kinder, gentler conservatism. So your thoughts on the forward party? There's a, there's a, a comedian named Jim Gaffigan, uh, who's yes. very, very funny man. Really funny. And uh, in, in one of his older specials, he talks about he grew up in Indiana and he worked at a, a Mexican restaurant called Chi-Chi's. And the Indiana Rubes would come in, and they would go, what's a taco? And he'd go, oh, well, it's a, a tortilla, either corn or flour with beans or beef or chicken and cheese. Fantastic. What's an enchilada? Well, it's, uh, it's a tortilla, <laughs> either corn or flour with beans or chicken. Or, and, and this is exactly <laughs> what we're looking at here. This, this is 100% what we're dealing with. We had Kim Iverson on on the the AM Wake Up show the other week, and we asked her about the Forward Party, and she's describing it to me. And I look up and I go, "Oh, it's a hedge fund." <laughs> and she she blinked, and then like gulped, and then sidestepped. And, and that's, I mean, that may just be the way that, that my brain works, but as she's describing it, oh, we're going to go in, we're going to, we're going to basically absorb some of these other third parties that we're having problems getting places. And we're going to try and put forth the most, you know, responsible candidate. You're a hedge fund. You're scooping up failing third parties. You've got a $5 billion war chest to start with. You're going to use their ballot access to run a somehow more milk toast candidate than the ones that are agreed upon after the primary is over 
for the other two parties, this is this is a unique pathway to money laundering that I had not previously considered. I am intrigued. Tell me how I can get on the board. <laughs> I would say this. It's simple. They want to create the illusion of a third party without actually having a third party. They know that people are going to jump off the demo, off the Titanic and they're like, hey, we've got some room on the Lusitania. Perhaps you would climb right on here. Uh, at any rate, let's move forward. Uh, Ukraine's celebrity-in-chief just took time off from his heavy schedule of appearances at major Western gatherings for a photo shoot with his wife in Vogue magazine. You know, Jim, as the average poor Ukrainian schmuck is catching hot metal from artillery rounds, and this guy's uh, taking very nice pictures with his wife. I'm sure they had a buffet on the side with maybe perhaps braised asparagus and a pan-seared trout. I don't know. I bet it was a nice time. Let's start with you, Jim Cavanaugh. It was pan-seared brook trout. Oh, man, I love that, especially during artillery season. In foie sauce. Jim! Yeah, I mean, uh, we talked about this yesterday. It's 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 ludicrous, it's risible, but, you know, as I said, this is really an image to be presented to the uh, American elite. You know, these people are one of us. <laughs> you know, they're they're just like our celebrity, our favorite celebrity, uh, whoever your favorite celebrity is, who's on uh, you know uh, Instagram every day. And you know, Annie Leibovitz, they're they're a, a worthy subject for Annie Leibovitz's photography. And you know, they 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 they're a cool, cute couple that you know, would be great at any dinner party on the Upper West Side. So, you know, that's why we have to support them. And, you know, and this is really the audience it's it's designed for and it's designed to, you know, create the and promote the idea that these people are our our kind of people. And therefore, you know, we have to give them as much money as they want to maintain their lifestyles, which is essentially what we're doing with the American elite and celebrity elite. So, uh, you know, it's disgraceful that this goes on in the middle of a war and that that anybody could think this was a, a politically astute thing for them to do. Uh, in terms of uh, the Ukrainian public, certainly, but uh, it, 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 the, the target of it is the uh, the American public that supports the, the spending of the money on Ukraine. Steve, your thoughts on the Vogue president? Okay, so I, I have two. I have the let's let's piggyback off of what Jim said, and then I have the complete tinfoil hat version. Um, I'm gonna, I'm, I'm <laughs> That's the one I'm both. looking for, but right there, I want yeah, the tinfoil uh, hat. <laughs> uh, the, we'll we'll open with the tinfoil hat version because we we've um, we've heard that for the entirety of this conflict, uh, uh, Mrs. Zelensky has been at the house in Miami that was uh, exposed in the Panama Papers. Um, and so now she's back in Ukraine. So this could be the the exit strategy in terms of the West going, OK, Koki Smurf, your time's up. <laughs> We're done. And your wife's here now. So you're going to go where we tell you to and you're going to go away uh, because prior to that, they hadn't been together. That's the tinfoil hat version. The other version is that this is a fundraising pamphlet that was circulated amongst the donor class, which are the people that read and subscribe to Vogue, and who whose uh, coffers need to be squeezed a little bit more. 
so that the, the Zelenskys can not only maintain their their lifestyle at I'm, I assume the Polish embassy still uh, I'm I'm not entirely <laughs> sure, um, but but so that uh, the contracts can keep flowing, and all of the people that the people who read Vogue want to sit in the same restaurant as when they're on vacation still get to crank out the weapons and still get to to make the backroom deals. Steve, does that tinfoil hat have a hanger coming out of the top of it? Or is it just a tinfoil <laughs> hat? Because I, I, I need to know how good your reception is because the hanger helps. I, uh, I, I, I am not under uh, authorization to disclose the specs <laughs> okay. of the tinfoil hat. Okay. Okay. Uh, Fair yeah. enough. Fair enough. So Europe uh, hypnotized into a war economy. Uh, Jim Cavanaugh, this to me is amazing uh, how leaders, whether it's Italy or France or Germany, they they are following this line as their people are in Poland and I think in Hungary out in the woods gathering sticks as the German economy is starting to slide because their manufacturing is going to suffer as they don't have access to energy. This, to me, is amazing. It is astounding. Okay, you know, it's and, astounding. And, and, yeah, no, <laughs> confirming what you say, it's, you know, it's a, it's a, a case of civilizational suicide that, you know, I've never seen, absolutely never seen anything like this before. You know, this is the European continent uh, killing itself, you know, putting itself into, uh, uh, you know, uh, like one of the, the, the chambers you use for the, the that they used to kill the animals in a, you know, a pound by sucking out the air, you know, and, and this article was kind of, it was very good because it, it went through, you know, specifically, look, this is not just, oh, we're going to substitute one customer for another customer or one vendor for another vendor. This is a whole network of transportation network, of supply chains, of storage facilities, how you move things around, not just the, not, not just the, the things themselves, but the, the fact that you have dozens and dozens of contractors and vendors that you've been working with for decades, you've built up relationships, these all have to be replaced in six months. Cannot do it, you know, absolutely impossible. You can't, you can't replace all of the minerals and all of the energy and all of the, the goods that are coming from Russia, but no, you, you also, you can't replace the transportation networks. You can't re replace the storage facilities. You can't re replace the ships. You can't, you know, these are, th this is something that you just can't re replace all of that all of a sudden in every country in Europe in the next three months. So it's a complete disaster that, you know, they're bringing upon themselves for, I don't know what reason they, 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 they and at the behest of the United States. I mean, it's it's really like, you know, uh, the, the, the United States whistles and the dog comes and jumps off the cliff at the United States. You know, the, the master is on the other side of the, the, the ravine. The dog tries to jump at it. So I, I really, it's bizarre. It is suicidal. It's civilizational, social, socioeconomic suicide that is, I, I don't know how they're going to get out of it because Russia is not coming back in the same way. First of all, they they would have to abjure all of their sanctions, the whole sanction regime that's been going on for a decade, and they're not gonna do that. And Russia's never gonna trust them again in the same way. And once they start moving, replacing their European customers with Chinese and Indian customers, they're not gonna come back. 
this is a very, very bad situation for Europe, and it's of their own making. Steve Poikinen, I, w- I would like to say that the European leaders are acting like lemmings, but lemmings don't really commit mass suicide. So It's true. So, so <laughs> <laughs> I just wanted to impress you with my knowledge of lemmings. I appreciate it. Yeah, hey, man, I do what I can. So your thoughts, because this, this, is, this is insane. Well, the, the hypnosis part, as a, a you know subject metaphor for the article it it really does hit home because they've done nonstop edward bernaysian levels of propaganda on europe to get them to behave in this manner for about a say close to a century uh we we've been We've been systematically making it more difficult for people to think independently and voice their opinions. We've been taking away people's ability to fix or repair things and make them more reliant on the state. So by the time that the captured entities of the state are told, hey, jump across the ravine, that's all they're going to do. They don't know how to do anything else. They've never been taught how to do anything else. Where you see the real resistance all over Europe, all over the world, is from the people who have, just by base of profession, have been forced to be less reliant on the state. And they're the people that are going, hey, wait a minute. Everything about this goes against the way that you would do things if you were trying to continue society. You are clearly not trying to continue society in a manner that that is sustainable for us. So who is it for? And, and how come there's so many more of us than there are of you and we're not doing enough about it? Jim, looking at this, at some point, you keep telling people, oh, everything's going to be wonderful. We'll be fine without Russian energy. At some point, the European people are going to wake up and say, hey, I got an empty refrigerator. The heat ain't working and I'm laid off. I think they're going to end up tearing that continent to shreds. Am I wrong, Jim? Yeah, it's already starting to happen. I mean, you know, you see what's happening in, in Holland and Italy. And, you know, it, it, of course, it's going to be political upheaval. I mean, I, Steve put it in a very good way. This is not sustainable for us. Well, who's it sustainable for? <laughs> you know, I mean, what are you for whom are you doing this? And and. Uh, that's kind of the underlying uh, problematic of capitalism itself, but now it's come to a head in a very dramatic way. And people are saying, you know, really, in whose interest in this, who's being not, not only sustained in the long run, but even kept alive and kept in a decent standard of living in the, in the very short run, being able to eat, being able to, uh, you know, stay warm in the winter. Uh, so these are going to, must have, uh, uh, political consequences and political upheaval, unless <laughs> the hypnosis, the, the Bernaysian machine, the, 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 the ideological mm-hmm. apparatus is so powerful that it can keep people, but it, it, it reaches a limit at a certain point, and it's coming to that limit. And it, it's kind of obvious. We see the upheaval around the world. Dr. Jim Cavanaugh and Steve Poikin and gentlemen, thank you both so much for your time today. We really appreciate that analysis. Enjoy your weekends and We look forward to having you back. Thank you. Thank you very much. Folks, you've been listening to the Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. 
We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. The New York Times writes that Nancy Pelosi's trip to Taiwan is too dangerous, and we know now that she's departed for Asia, but the stop in Taiwan is still uncertain. For insight into this, let's turn to our next panel. We're joined by a published book author and two-time Pulitzer Prize finalist with more than 20 years of journalistic experience. He's a former Washington Post bureau chief and award-winning foreign correspondent on two continents. John Jeter. As always, John, welcome back. Thanks for having me, Wilmer. We're also joined by a diverse communications professional. He has a background in leading communications departments, being a communications professor and a TV news correspondent for numerous networks domestically and internationally. Dr. Colin Campbell, as always, sir, welcome back. Thanks for having me. So, John Jeter, we know that in the conversation yesterday that took place between Xi Jinping and Joe Biden, that uh, President Xi was very, very clear in his language to Joe Biden, and that still seems to be on the verge of being ignored because we don't know whether or not at this point Nancy Pelosi will, in fact, try to go to Taiwan. But your thoughts? This is uh, this is uh, distressing. It really is uh, for a number of reasons. One of them, I think, is that uh, the Chinese uh, clearly uh, have seen what's going on in Russia, uh, and they understand that the United States is a dog barking very loudly, uh, but that if you call its bluff, uh, it's a uh, paper tiger. Um, Vladimir Putin does not bluff. I have to believe that the Chinese are going to follow his lead. And so I'm, I'm hoping that the United States, especially our government, will understand this and stand down. When they say don't go to China, when they, when they say don't go to Taiwan, you probably shouldn't go to Taiwan. So I'm hoping that cooler heads will prevail. I'm not sure. You know, the United States is desperate uh, to hold on to its empire. Uh, it... it, it um, there might be people in the in the administration and in the government who are uh, telling Nancy Pelosi that she has to go now because if they don't go, they'll look weak. Uh, the United States will look weak. So this is a very dangerous situation, and um, I don't know how it's going to play out. I hope that uh, Nancy Pelosi will find some reason not to go to Taiwan, but I'm not I'm not 100 percent sure that she will. And uh, Colin Campbell, we know that uh, President Xi told Joe Biden, and, and this language to me is amazing because we know that the Chinese aren't usually this direct. He said, playing with fire will set yourself on fire. And, <laughs> you know, he said, public opinion cannot be violated. I hope the U.S. can see this clearly. And then he said, and, you know, I told you so. So, you know, that takes me back to the days on the corner. Don't start nothing, won't be nothing. And unfortunately, Americans don't seem to understand that you don't play the game of chicken with people who don't play games. Colin Campbell. American exceptionalism. I think that Democrats and, and Republicans, both parties, are looking at the way that uh, they've been warned uh, that the 
that Nancy Pelosi has been warned not to go to Taiwan, and they're extremely sensitive to that in many ways. One, it's another country dictating the movements of a diplomat from the United States, and I think they're very averse to that. And I did read that. I, uh, the interpretation I saw was those who play with fire will perish by it. Right? Mm-hmm. And it's uh, and Xi Jinping was saying that he hopes that the U.S. will stand down. Well, does the U.S. typically stand down when it's told, suggested, strongly encouraged to stand down from other countries? And if and, and the answer to that is usually no. And if it does do that, what would the optics be then? As the U.S. now looking at a uh, looked at from a weaker position, there's already the aesthetic that because of the current president that we have and his age or just the way he presents himself, that the U.S. looks weak. And I think that those optics are things that a lot of our lawmakers here are looking at as well. When you have another country saying, don't come here, uh, otherwise there's going to be problems. And obviously with the U.S. and the way that it has maneuvered over generations is thinking, well, you know, you may want to check yourself. You know what I mean? Because we're the United States. We, you know, we believe in American exceptionalism. We don't believe in kowtowing to other countries. And I think this is the the kind of um, calculus that some are looking at right now. Of course, no one wants this to be a, a brouhaha over this. It's already culminating, but the U.S. has strong uh, wants to maintain a strong relationship with Taiwan since they made that deal in the in the late seventies, early eighties. There, um, they look at Taiwan as a as a place that could uh, still perpetuate democracy in the shadow of China uh, to some degree, and I think that they want to stand by Taiwan for that reason. Of course not to mention the trade that goes on, not to mention the potential of some of the resources that come from Taiwan, the, the, ca- the working capital that helps produce some of the products that we use throughout the globe. Uh, so we have that as well. So they, there's a keen interest for the U.S. to maintain a strong relationship with Taiwan, even with, with China uh, looming in the near distance there. Um, and, I, and I think that with the warnings coming from China, it will be interesting to see how Pelosi operates. And John Jeter, this just came to mind when Colin said that the United States has been told to stand down and the United States won't stand down. Here's the difference between Taiwan and Ukraine. There's no proxy in the middle. In in Ukraine, the United States is in this until the last Ukrainian dies. Here... What's happening in Taiwan, and I am not projecting this, I am not hoping for this, I am not calling for this, but the Chinese could very well shoot Nancy Pelosi out of the sky. It's a it's a real possibility. I, I would think that the Chinese who are smart people, which is not the case for our ruling class, be they Democrat or Republican, I would think that that would not be the Chinese response, but they have said, and we should take them at their word, that their response will be forceful. Um, and and so uh, this, <laughs> I, I wish I could say what I like to say, you know, going back to your street analogy, um, but uh, you know, you, you, what, what, what is it, a, a soft behind, a hard head makes for a soft behind? Yep. Uh, the United States is, 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 is very much, uh, 
putting that to the test right now. And, you know, and if I can, if I can sort of, you know, I guess mix metaphors to some extent, you know, I wish that Joe Biden and Nancy Pelosi were fans of Tupac and they remember him saying, you don't go to war till you get your money right. Uh-huh. Our money ain't right. <laughs> Our money ain't right. Let me add this. Mearsheimer, great power politics, world power politics. There are three great powers in this world right now. True three world powers, the United States, Russia, and China. One of them has gone to the border of Russia and is pumping weapons into Ukraine and has been doing that for eight years, is literally paying the bills of the government in Ukraine, is encouraging the people of Ukraine to fight the Russians. So three great powers. The United States goes to the border of Russia, another great power, and starts pumping missiles and weapons and says, you go get them Russians. One of them, the United States, goes to the border of another great power to Taiwan and pumps them full of weapons and says, they're not going to tell you what to do. Now, let's recall what happened when one of them came to Cuba and tried to come to the U.S. border and do it. Let's just think what would happen if Russia and China suddenly were in Mexico building bases and pumping weapons into the Mexican government and training them. We know what the United States would do. So my point is this, Colin, this is great power politics. Russia is in the process of blowing us the heck off of their border and China will do the same and we would do the same. I can't see how anybody can deny that. Let me ask you, what do you think about that, Colin? Yeah, I, I think that's you know troubling, especially when you're looking at the diplomatic relations between the countries and the way that China and the U.S. have such close economic ties as well. When we're talking about money, we cannot talk about money in the United States without bringing in China, especially when it comes to foreign relations and especially when it comes to geopolitics. China is a key player in that. They're the largest holder of debt outside of U.S. shareholders. So when we're talking about the money that it costs to for the military industrial complex to pump weapons into various countries and to fund various governments or to set up proxy conflicts, China's money is involved in that as well. And so if we go to bat against China, well, then that adds to the complexity of it. And we have to imagine that it would be very, very difficult for the United States to sustain any type of conflict, especially with China, if they are one of the major financiers of what these incursions would take to operate. Let me add this, John, from the perspective, you know, I've said the the great power politics part, right? And I think that's obvious. I think great power politics are obvious. If it was Rome, if it was the Ottoman Empire, no great power is ever going to allow another great power to come to their border and threaten them. If they don't blow us off their border now, sooner or later, it's going to happen. John Jeter. It, it reminds me of uh, the episode from The Sopranos when Tony Soprano is getting older and uh, I think he had just been injured or something like that. And he's feeling uh, kind of weak. And so he picks a fight with his young buff driver. And of course, he's the mob boss. So the, the driver stands down and allows Tony Soprano to, to basically uh, beat him up. Right. Um China and Russia are not going to do that, right? We're Tony Soprano, we're aging, we're the aging mob boss, right? This is the, we've got the Russian crime family, we've got the Chinese crime family, although frankly, uh, their their rackets are, are far less criminal than ours in the United States. And, and we're telling them, 
we're telling them we're still the boss and they don't want to hear it right they don't respect us uh and and this is not this is not going to be like that episode of sopranos at that point that's where the departure happens right uh tony soprano is 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 uh is, is, has left the building and everyone knows that so it's uh uh, this could get very ugly sooner rather than later, but one way or another, this is going to get very ugly. Now, I don't know if that necessarily means uh, military violence, but one way or another, there's going to be a very real reckoning. Yeah, they could just decide to dump all of our debt. They could. There's economic things they could do to cause great pain. The, the already the BRICS countries are talking about uh, a a a a uh, international reserve currency to rival the dollar. So that's already in the works. So yes, this could be very messy. This will be very messy. Well, talking about very messy, Americans dismayed at the end of Roe are less certain they will vote. Poll finds while 75% of Democrats want Biden out in 2024, Dr. Colin Campbell, it's not looking good for the Democrats right now. No, definitely not. You have intra-party fighting, even though you had uh, Manchin and Schumer working on that, that bill for climate and, uh, and the tax policy. But other than that, some of the big budget agendas that the Biden administration had hoped to pass have just stalled. You have uh, the, the intra-party fighting, which means that, you know, the Democrats are looking weak. Like I said at the beginning of the show, you already have the optics there where the president himself looks weak. I mean, that's, that's always somewhere in, in the headlines. Uh, you know, what, what is going on with President Biden? This, uh, we did learn that he has tested negative for COVID-19. But a lot of people were speculating, you know, how was he going to do with COVID-19, being that uh, already his physical state has been questioned, his mental acuity has been questioned. And of course, the major thing, more major than all of those, people just hurting in general, right? If people who are still struggling to pay bills, people who are really upset over gas prices, they are just not feeling comfortable living in the country right now. And they want relief. And the best way they feel to get relief is to get a new government in or at least some new players in the government. And that would exclude a lot of the Democrats that are in office right now. Even if it, uh, they don't even know what Republicans may have in store, they feel like it'll be better than what the Democrats have delivered so far. And a lot of people think that is nothing. Nothing that would really make them feel better about their vote at the end of 2020. And John, sticking with your crime family analogies in The Godfather, when Salazzo put the hit on the Don, what did he say to Tom Hayden? He said, Tom, you and I both know the Don is slipping. Would I have been able to hit him 10 years ago? John G. Right. No, that's, that's perfect. That's exactly right. Yeah. Uh, it, you know, uh, the Democrats are in, I think they face an existential crisis at this point. Uh, they they certainly can't turn to uh, Bernie Sanders to save them. I think he has discredited himself uh, with uh, the left uh, or really just with working people who would have, I think, easily uh, handed him the presidency over Donald Trump if the Democrats hadn't rigged it, uh, I'm sure. Uh, uh, the, the primaries, not the general. I think I think Joe Biden won the general. But um, yeah, the Democrats are in very real trouble. I don't 
you know, this this bill they just passed was they're going to pass with Mansion is rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic. Nothing more. People will see it for that. I don't see what they could do, to, what they could, what they would be willing to do to save themselves right now. They're not going to deliver uh, any kind of real health care reform. They're not going to deliver any kind of student debt relief. Uh, they're not going to. I mean, even now they're gaslighting whether we're in a recession. You know, for 40 years, the definition of a recession has been two consecutive quarters of economic con GDP, GDP contraction. But now they're saying, oh, no, no, but we've got jobs. So we're not in a recession. You're in a recession. Everybody feels that we're in a recession. We're in a recession. And they're just tr they're desperate trying to save themselves. And I don't I mean, this is like a Jedi mind trick. We're not in a recession when for 40 years. And most people know this. That's the definition of a recession. So, yeah, the Democrats are in trouble. They don't see a white way out. I don't see a way out for them. And I think this is a very real existential threat that they're facing right now to the party. Let me ask you this, Colin. We've seen this, and it's a joke to me. Now Andrew Yang and Christine Todd Whitman are coming out saying a forward party for disaffected Democrats and Republicans. Now, they don't really have much of a platform or any real policies. It seems like a fraud to me. I mean, certainly answer the other questions, but your thoughts on the uh, it's almost like they want to create the illusion of a third party because they know the Democrats are dying. So they can be like, OK, right off the Democratic Party, right on into this uh, forward party right here. And uh, welcome to the old boss, just like the new boss. <laughs> I think that people are looking for new solutions. They're looking for new approaches to problems that have plagued us for a long time. The two-party system is something that has been heavily critiqued. Uh, we have to look at the population uh, growth uh, since the two-party system really took hold, uh, since the, the, the switch between Democrats and Republicans uh, in the middle of the 20th century. And I think that there are a lot of frustrated individuals. We have to think about, you know, we're amongst us, we're probably boomers and Gen Xers, right? And when you look at other generations, they are looking at our generations and saying, what are you guys doing? You know, we're suffering it costs more to live. Um, it, you know, the environment doesn't seem to be doing well. There's still conflicts back and forth. We're still having these old battles that we talk about in dealing with race, dealing with gender that have been uh, around for generations. We need something fresh and new. And maybe the two-party system just isn't good enough. It's just not big enough. It's not effective enough. Maybe a third party could be an answer. And I think Yang is, is definitely a person who could speak to that. Whitman, I'm not so sure about, but Yang is a, when he was running, he was definitely uh, more in tune with what some of the younger voters were looking at when they, when he talked about automation, when he talked about a, um, a universal basic income, something that was experimented with in Scandinavia. A lot of younger people said, yeah, you know, with the rising cost of school expenses, with housing, inflation, you know, um, UBI might not be a bad idea. Yes, a third party would be extremely difficult, I think, to actually put into action. To concretize. So we've seen other parties try this, uh, the Libertarian Party, the a Green Party. There are a lot of failures there. However, based on the climate that we're in right now, this would not be surprising if there was a, a, a group of individuals, lawmakers, uh, politicians that wanted to leave the confines and the convention of the Republican Democratic parties. We'll see where Yang and Whitman take this. Uh, you know, I've passed this prologue, probably not too far, 
But we are in different circumstances, and that could be enough to try to push at least a different consideration when it comes to political parties to the fore. John Jeter, to Colin's point, I don't know that it's so much that they want something fresh and new. They just want somebody to deliver on what it is that they promise. Because what Joe Biden was campaigning on in 2020, it wasn't new. And he knew what to say. He knew to say living wage. He knew to promise doing away with college debt. You know, he knew what to say. He knew to talk about health care. The issue was he didn't deliver. And so when we look at this CNN poll that found that 75 percent of Democrats don't want Biden in 2024, another interesting element of that is only 18 percent of young Democratic voters are buying into the Democratic message. And that's because the Democrats aren't delivering. I said this a little earlier in the show. This reminds me of why African-Americans feel beholden to the Democratic Party. It's because of civil rights legislation. If the Democrats had delivered on free junior college and eliminating college debt, that would have brought youth to the party, and they would have remained loyal to the party for the next 30 years. Oh, I, I will go you one better, doctor. I would suggest that if Barack Obama had just delivered on a public health care option, option. There you just go. that, there you go. Just that, I think he would have saved the, the Democratic Party for a generation. Game on. Not even a full Medicare for all system. He would have. He would have beat the brakes off Mitt Romney. Mitt Romney and the Democrats would would would, would rule the roots for the next generation. But but the problem is that uh, you're right. I mean, I think that uh, the milk is spoiled, right? The ship is sailed, and people see that. Even young people who are just now really starting to tune into politics understand that the Democratic Party is feckless. They're ineffective, and and the and the really scary part, uh, it's really not scary anymore, right? It's just kind of reality. The really scary part is that we know that these economic crises tend to produce political crises. And so what we've got on the horizon, very, you know, they can talk all they want about, you know, jailing Donald Trump. I don't think they can do it, right? I just don't. I think if they do it, they're going to actually uh, martyr him. And so, um, you know, we're faced with the process. Let me quickly tell you this, John. They better, because if he gets into the race in 2024, game over. Well, I, I, I think I think he's going to get into the race in 2024. I think it's going to be him and DeSantis. If I had to bet money, I don't have very many conversations with uh, people in the Republican Party, but that would be my guess. And, and I, you know, I think maybe you want to talk about this a little later, but I would say that the only hope, and I don't think this will win, but I think this would be their best chance, would be, and I think they're talking about this. I've heard people say that they're actually uh, encouraging Michelle Obama to get into the race, but a ticket of, I would think, Michelle Obama at the top and perhaps uh, Gavin Newsom uh, as her uh, vice president might give them the best shot to beat Trump and DeSantis. Um, but I, I, I just, I don't, I don't see a very rosy future for the Democratic Party or for working class people overall uh, in the near future. Colin? Your thoughts? I, yeah, I just don't want to sell the, the younger generation short a little bit. I think definitely healthcare is big, but we do have to look at some of the other issues that they find important too, like conscious consumerism, um, having a safety net when they get older. These are issues that 
they, that don't often make the headlines. We definitely talk about inflation and health care. Those are definitely important. But when we're looking at younger voters, too, they are looking at their futures. They're looking at climate as well. Um, that's why Inslee was a, was a popular candidate for a lot of younger folk as well. So they need to, when they, when they want new ideas coming out, Democrats also have to be sensitive about that. That's why we saw a little bit of that intra-party fighting between Pelosi and Ocasio-Cortez, for example. Yes, Cortez can be more progressive uh, for the taste of some, but she was reflecting some of the younger constituents and, and the younger demographics that are looking, they, you know, are looking forward and want more substantive policy coming from their lawmakers aside from the convention. And I think that Democrats would be wise to take note of that, even though there are a lot of traditional issues that still need to be ameliorated. May I, may I, can I just say something very quickly? Yes, yeah, sure. Just to respond to that. I agree with you, Colin. There's a lot of issues that are on the table that are unaddressed, particularly for young people. But I think uh, the AOCs uh, and, and, and the squad, as it's called, is a big part of the problem in that they are, they were promoted, they promoted themselves as a solution to the sort of staid establishment Democrats, and they're not delivering either. And just recently, I heard something, I read something that I think should really send chills to the Democratic Party, which is that Ilhan Omar, in a at a concert with a Somalian, <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, uh, a Somalian uh, uh, entertainer, uh-huh. uh, Ilhan Omar went up there to introduce the entertainer, and the Somalian community, there's a huge Somalian community in Minneapolis, in the Twin Cities area, and they booed her, right? Mm-hmm. That should send chills up the spine of every single Democrat, even the alternatives to the Nancy Pelosi's and the Chuck Schumer's and the, and the Steny Hoyer's are seen as feckless, as seen as oppositional. And I think that's just going to end very badly for all of us, frankly. I agree with that. They see the party as broken. And so that's why I, you're starting to hear these conversations about what about a third party? What about a party that takes on new ideas that are fresher than the staid politics, the old guard? And that's and that's why a lot of people have critiqued AOC and I guess the squad and probably booed Omar. They thought they were going to be these alternatives that would fight through the bureaucracy and fight the old guard. But what did they do? In a lot of ways, they stood down. The old guard is still maintaining its position. More moderate Democrats have stood in their position and nothing has changed. And these younger people are like, well, what's the difference? You know, you talk right. all this good right. talk, but you're not walking the walk. How about, you know, another party? Maybe that's the alternative. That'll also include some ideas from that are important to our generation, not just the generational fighting that has gone on from since the silent generation up until today. You know, we need something fresh and new. So I I would would not be surprised if we hear more conversations coming out about alternative parties, different politicians trying to mix it up a bit, because what has been in place is clearly not working, especially for younger generations who are hoping for more. They sold me out for chicken change. They told me they did. They had it all arranged. James Brown, the big payback. The big payback. The big payback. Not the little one. No, but again, I just want to say, you know, Colin, you're right about new, but if they had just delivered on what they promised. Anything. Because it wasn't that, it, it, it wasn't that people thought it, it was they said it. And didn't deliver. That that that's my only point. But and, and I don't say that to talk disagree to talk with you. Didn't walk the walk. There you yeah, go. Talk to talk. Didn't walk the walk.
John Jeter, Colin Campbell, both thank you so much. Really appreciate it. Look forward to having you guys back. Folks, have a good weekend. You've been listening to The Critical Hour here on Radio Sputnik. Thank you for allowing our voices into your space. On behalf of myself and my co-host, Garland Nixon, we hope you were informed and enlightened. We look forward to talking with you all right here next week on Radio Sputnik. Be safe. Peace and blessings. We're out. 